Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business news podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Kirk LaPointe. And I'm Tyler Orton. On today's show, the BIV Tech Panel, they're going to join us to talk about efforts from big technology giants to fight fake news and the controversy surrounding the purging of conspiracy website Infowars. Later on, we're going to have a discussion with REMAX Vice President Elton Ash, and he's going to explain how the coming legalization of cannabis is going to expect to influence residential values in the coming months. And a range of innovative, disruptive technology has emerged to provide financial services and systems that conduct transactions and aim for greater efficiency. So join us September 13th for BIV's FinTech panel, where we're going to focus on helping small and medium-sized businesses make informed decisions in this new landscape. For more info, go to BIV.com slash events. Let's start with our tech panel. And with us to talk about the latest news in technology, including the tech giant's recent efforts to purge the controversial fake news website Infowars, it is Ali Pordad, CEO of Progressa, and Linda Fawkes. She is the CEO of Glue Technology Society. Ali and Linda, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. No, we should should congratulate Ali. It's a big day for Ali. I was going to bring that up, Kurt. Go ahead. No, you you go ahead. uh, We got to break the story as well on BIV.com, but you guys just raised $84 million over at Progressus. Tell me a little little bit about what's ahead for you guys now. Thanks, Tyler. And thanks, Kirk. Appreciate the support and appreciate the article this morning. Uh, Yeah, no, Progressus is excited to make the announcement. It was two months of fundraising, uh, both Toronto and Vancouver, and uh, all of our employees and uh, investors were sort of eagerly awaiting the announcement. And so uh, with this announcement, we're fairly well positioned now to start to take the next steps that we wanted to as a business. We had a strategic plan put in place at the beginning of the year. Um, we have been executing on it uh, quite aggressively, uh, actually uh, beating our forecast from the beginning of the year. And now, uh, you know, we really needed to sort of uh, fix the foundation and have a, a strong amount of uh, equity in the book to do that. So We've done that, and it'll unlock uh, future financing for us and help us carry carry to the next steps. And needless to say, it wouldn't have happened without doing the Roundhouse Radio Show for us uh, and the podcast. That was a large, large that was uh, the contributor. Big, that, was a, that was a foundation block. Most of the new investors on, oh, are eager, li- eager, yeah. eagerly listening. That's what, that's what they say. It's like, <laughs> are you going to keep doing the podcast? Yeah, that's, that's what we say. But I uh, really do appreciate your support. Thank you. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, we can't wait. We'll, we'll keep an eye out for you guys. I know you and I have talked about maybe an IPO around the corner as well. So hopefully we'll uh, get the scoop on that too, Allie. Sounds good. So why don't we get into it, guys? Because Apple, Facebook, Google, and others, well, they began purging Infowars last week. I I don't know how familiar everybody is out there with it, but I mean, it's a fake news website. They they tout a lot of conspiracy theories about, you know, everything from 9-11 to Sandy Hook. And the tech giants are saying, well, you guys are violating our our terms and uh, conditions over hate speech, glorification of violence. Linda, I'll throw it to you. I mean, are the tech giants a little slow on the draw here? Or why is it taking so long for them to get to this point? Why it's taking so long, I don't know. I think they are slow on the draw. uh, Matthew Prince over at Cloudflare over almost a year ago brought up this point very wisely when he discussed this this issue when he kicked a neo-Nazi group out from under Cloudflare protection, but they are very slow to move. And and Apple, well, I'd love to say they're doing an incredible job by coming forward and showing the way for everybody. They just kind of feels to me like they did a bit of sleight of hand moving, let's get off podcast, but you're all good to stream over on the app store. So 
I think we have a lot of conversation to go. It's a start, and we got to start. What do you think this says about, um, I I was going to say corporate culture, but about even the ethical construct of these companies that it has taken them until episode after episode uh, where where we're almost, I mean, the horse hasn't left the stable. The horse is like out there carousing and frankly, you know, breeding at the moment. This is not, uh, it's not like Alex Jones has just popped up last Friday. And it's not like there's only one Alex Jones. This isn't Mm -hmm. the first issue these companies have had to deal with. Why is Twitter still saying, yes, okay, they breached our terms and conditions, but, um, but they're still allowed. And well, they still, and they still let Donald Trump put news on on twitter right. every day that's not that's not tr- the truth it's, yeah. making it's proven twitter, not to be the truth yeah twitter looks very bad in all of this no doubt about it and i'm glad to see apple and youtube and the gang have have done something about it but you're right this is very late in the day to have these conversations and smart people have been trying to have the conversation for some time so i hope that this is a time when now we all as consumers engage in the conversation because it is us that's making these platforms be what they are right this is a public facing yeah content product that we're yeah. all participating in. Yeah, and no question, Ali, the technology in this case has permitted those who say they did not have a platform. And and I, I would say a lot of them are outrageous, contentious. Uh, some of them are odious uh, in, in my own view. But for some people, they, they represent a voice in all of this. The platforms gave them this voice. Is it, am I doing a devil's advocate thing too much here to say, so so who now is going to decide yeah. on what is acceptable and what isn't acceptable? That, that's how, the, how do we figure that out? That's the question that, that that's making this so difficult. And I think that's what Facebook and Twitter and Google and Amazon and, and anybody else that's in media today uh, that has a reach beyond just their own platform, but has a reach into all aspects of people's lives. Uh, they have to, you know, they have to answer that question. Uh, I don't know the answer. I think this is a this is this is going to be very tricky uh, for these companies. Uh, you know, I think Facebook's already taken a couple proper steps by having all the content curated. So they've got they've ramped up their staff internally to begin reviewing this content and 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 reviewing it uh, sort of eagerly and making sure that if it's fake news, they market fake news. I'm, I'm starting to see that more and more. But you know that. I'm not sure how scalable that is, you know, heading into the, you know, into the future, you know, it, it, they're going to probably have to put some, some machines behind it, these yeah. computers. What's fake news in like our context here in Canada, you know, if you're fake news in Slovenia, you're, you're going to have to hire human beings and say all these different other countries. I don't know how yeah. it's actually scalable for Facebook to actually produce, pursue this. I mean, Zuckerberg would prefer if it's all just algorithms at this point. I, and, I don't and know. He, and they, they might, and they might get there, and they might get there. But in the beginning, they have enough money; they have billions of dollars of cash on hand. They can hire some staff, and I know it's not great because they're public companies and they have shareholders that they have to. But you uh, could argue appease. that that the Alex Jones of the world has have made Facebook billions of dollars over the years. And that's an argument I'm sure that they're struggling with at the board level. Well, and Facebook's saying publicly now that they want to bring the good news to the front. They want to push the good news, the the news that is vetted. They're trying hard to actually make a distinction between what is just news and information and what is worthy of our our attention. So they are making almost editorial decisions now moving forward. So it'll be interesting to see how that changes the news feed. Because I can see, Linda, 
look, Alex Jones, I would argue, is is out there at the relative extreme. I mean, I think there are like even more serious players in that space, but let's just say Alex Jones is planted out there on the far right of the extreme. The question then becomes how how much do you keep slicing away at um, with people who maybe are in this you know, a little vaguer zone about what it is that they say and espouse. And again, who decides what line to draw? I don't know that this is just a conversation for the content, for the platform people to be having, right? We've Mm -hmm. got a lot of people in this chain that provide us the internet, our registries, our hosts, our ISPs. I mean, the list is long. I think Mm. all of the the government included in that list, we all need to be- Pretty well, everyone knows back off that thing. But this is is a a very- uh, controversial topic here because you know you're now now we're talking about censorship That's we're right. talking about other what other guys i mean look in china right i mean yeah. there's they got the information is not even available so is that the other extreme right is the extreme not to allow anyone to to get access to any information well it's certainly not something we're going to figure out in the next few weeks this is a multi-year project i would expect for us to to work on this but i see it uh, coming from all levels of the entities that deliver the internet but to couldn't us, we see not this just coming? on Facebook. I, I, I'm surprised. Couldn't, couldn't, couldn't we see this coming a long, long time it ago? It should have come a long time ago. Well, it, it, they're they're yeah. playing catch up right now. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Is- Agreed. Well, I mean, I just can't go over the fact that, you know, Apple made the first move here, but I mean, Facebook's actually been debating this a long time. Do you think it is somewhat feckless that it actually took, you know, one of the big giants to actually fall in line first? Until we have now Vimeo over the weekend, which is a much yeah. smaller platform than, say, YouTube. Still pretty big, yeah. It's still pretty big, yeah. you know. But, like, why is it just taking, like, one person to, like, pull the trickle first? Especially, like, Apple, they're not one of those guys that have been one of those champions of free speech. Like, Facebook says it always has been. And it, it's kind of interesting that's you know, I, I think it's actually kind of Apple that had to pull the trigger first before a platform like Facebook or YouTube would before, I don't know, they, they would get into a little bit of uh, backlash as well. It doesn't surprise me. This is a, a, comp- a complicated issue. And I'm sure a lot of these companies, they may be talking about it, but they don't have solutions. You could probably talk about this, uh, talk about both sides of the equation t- until the cows come home. Uh, but it takes a, a giant like an apple to make it, you know, to take yeah. a step and in it, the right direction and then others will follow suit. And a giant like a Unilever saying, guys, we got a problem in this digital space we need to clean up or our brands mm-hmm. aren't going to be there. So perhaps this is the perfect storm and it's a time for everybody to have a different conversation about what we want to see on these platforms. And trying to put myself in the shoes of other people in this one, Linda, um, I would I would probably guess that conservatives feel that this will be much more of an attack on them they will. And their value system than liberals will ever feel. And so as a result, the pruning will be really almost all to the right of center. I that's, would think that's you're the right. Fear. They tend to be sensitive people, it seems. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's, <laughs> okay. and that's a risk. Uh, that's definitely a risk is that they're going to rally behind this and uh, use it to fuel a bigger fire. Yeah. Well, other big fires uh, ablazing here in the tech world. Uh, We were just talking about Google. And well, a new report from the AP reveals that a lot of Google services are actually still tracking users' movements, even after you go to your privacy settings and ask them not to do so. I don't know, Linda, I mean, is this idea of privacy, should we just kind of give up on it? Do we need to get governments more involved regulating, actually having some, you know, you know, harsh damages for a lot of these companies that still push us? So privacy still exists. 
I believe it still exists. It's not a binary thing. It's a changing thing. Uh, the reality of privacy today is it's expensive. It requires money, perhaps. It requires your time and thought. And if we don't, as citizens of the digital world, take on board our own privacy, it's going to get taken from us. And and I mean and certainly depending on where you live, uh, the jurisdiction that, that you reside, there there's going to be different privacy standards. And and today, I think Canada is uh, taking some steps forward. I mean, the, the, we know the EU did last year, uh, and Canada is taking those same steps this year. There's a bunch of legislation coming into coming into play uh, in the next couple of months that's going to uh, really force businesses to protect uh, consumer data and and their and the privacy of that data. Uh, I can see why the U.S. has gone the direction it has. You know, you have it's really toned from the top, and there's been a lot of deregulation in the U.S. over mm -hmm. the course of the last uh, 18 months. And if it continues to go in that direction, that could cause uh, bigger problems. And yet, uh, Linda, we've we've almost been prey to a kind of a technological determinism here, where we we want the technology to do its utmost on our behalf, and yet we, in doing so, we're of course surrendering piece by piece by piece some of the some of the precepts of privacy in order to make it most effective is one of the big things that you have to be coached into in this case is to frankly not let the tech be the tech all the time well we certainly don't need to be going um accepting the default settings that facebook for instance gives us right we need to be smarter consumers and understand what we're giving up what are we willing to give up when i use google maps i want google maps to know where i am i want to say how many minutes will it take me to get to x they need to know where i am for that but i don't have to use google maps there's other maps apps right um we we need to be smarter about what we're giving up it's not them always just taking the default setting is take but we can shut that down and we need to learn how to do that and that does require coaching it requires some sort of information it requires actually frankly a different way of working with your privacy and when i stand in front of people all the time and say hey here's the bad news you can't share passwords across your accounts you have to have different passwords, different usernames, et cetera. The room just goes silent because people don't want to be doing the hard thing. And that's, you know. Yeah, you have to do two, three, four, five instead of one, two, three, four. <laughs> it cannot yeah. be your dog plus your address or that reversed, right? Your dog's name. It's got, I know. Gone it. Yeah, she just <laughs> we got to work. I know, I did, totally. Do you work we, for Google? Our, uh, <laughs> you know we got to work a little harder than that. And so it, it's, uh, it's a lot on us, a lot on us. And, it, and it's going to get harder and harder because the companies are getting smarter and smarter and they have mm -hmm. and they're going to be able to offer more creative products to keep people engaged so the the more products they start to offer the more services they, they start to offer to keep people engaged the harder it's going to be to you know turn off those privacy settings you're, you're going to want to turn them on and and get those offers plus ali you know we we are on a drive to have technology provide greater transparency with our institutions in particular and in a lot of ways that's an incursion into things that they might have wanted to keep private over the years. So, you know, are we are we perhaps expecting a double standard here where where you know we we want our institutions to open up but we want the capacity to close ourselves down? Can can you play in both sandboxes at once? I I wonder if we're we're just going to have a clash of generations here where you're going to have a new generation of consumers coming up as children used to this used to having all the answers and having all this information at their fingertips and it's just going to become the way but isn't the corollary for that that they'll be quite willing to give over 
every detail of their lives. And it, and it, it may be the direction that the world's going. Yeah. yeah, but we're moving to a time when we are potentially giving up what is in our DNA, literally. Yeah. These, this is serious privacy concerns. And yeah. I do agree the younger generation tends to be a little bit, oh, mom, you're overreacting. But they're they're at one of the highest risk for online security fraud. The younger generations, right? The, even the young guys need to figure this out. I well, do tell Lin- my son that all the time. Well, Belinda, you're exactly right. The health yeah. area yeah. is one of the critical battlegrounds in all of this. Because yes, I I want all of my doctors to know as much about me, but I don't want necessarily my employer to know that. I don't want yeah. my colleagues to know that. I want, uh, but I want for sure the medical system to have all of that access to information. But what if it? Do you? What if? What if the insurance companies had access to? Ah, uh, no. And then that I was careful not to mention the insurers. But if, uh, if, if the medical, yeah, I mean, I mean, if the medical profession has right has your records, so Tw- yeah. insurers will get their hands on. Twenty three and Me just does a three hundred million dollar financing with GlaxoSmithKline. Well, I said to my son, who's in biotech bound university student, I said to him, Well, what if a univ- a um, insurance company bought out part of GlaxoSmithKline, mm-hmm. and now they have those records? Yeah. I mean, these are really serious. Big conflicts of interest, huge, yeah. absolutely huge. You know, and yeah, we this privacy issue is starting with this conversation about is privacy dead? Is this where we're at right now? But we're heading into very difficult waters on a privacy. Level, I do think I that we've redefined the term privacy, though, in the last five to ten years. It's not privacy as I grew up understanding it. In a big data world, privacy has definitely changed. It's not it's just not the, the hedge that's going to keep you private anymore. Yeah. Well, on that gloomy note, I'll uh, say goodbye <laughs> to everybody here, but uh, and I'll be changing my password as soon yeah, as possible. Yeah. But uh, Lindy, uh, Linda, Ali, thank you guys both so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you. That's Ali Pordad, CEO of Progressa, and Linda Falkas. She is CEO of Glue Technology Society. And Elton Ash from Remax is going to join us next to talk about how the upcoming legalization of cannabis is expected to influence property values. Stay with us. From production facilities to retail outlets, we might expect the legalized cannabis industry to provide a jolt to the commercial real estate market. But what does it also mean for residential properties and areas surrounding these businesses? Will potential homeowners be put off by the nascent industry or will they actually maybe be attracted by the unfolding opportunities abound? Joining us today, it is Elton Ash. He's Regional Executive Vice President, REMAX of Western Canada. Elton, great to have you back on the show. Great to be with you. So you might make the argument that uh, some retailers might not want to be near a cannabis outlet as they may not find like a good match with their brand. But I'm just wondering overall, I mean, do you actually anticipate that we'll see commercial real estate prices go upwards and, and maybe what the potential fallout could be for surrounding residential properties? Well, looking at the commercial side and and looking at some of the experience that uh, Colorado, for example, or Washington State have gone through south of us as they've had uh, marijuana legalized in those states for four years now, uh, there's been a bit of an interesting um, phenomenon occur there. On the commercial side, there certainly has been increased uh, demand from potential retailers looking at commercial space. Interestingly enough, the landlords who embrace the thought of having a marijuana retailer, cannabis retailer in their space and look at specializing in that regard, um, 
do quite well with it. And then if you extend that to the actual growing operations on a commercial scale, where significant build-out is required to meet the specialized growth requirements of a, of a cannabis grow operation, uh, those landlords are also doing very well in, in looking at their return. And, but it is a, becomes a very specialized field from a landlord-tenant kind of relationship. On the residential side, and, and there's been some study done in Colorado as to how property values have been affected. And there's been a very interesting phenomenon occur in Colorado in the city of Denver. Uh, any residential property that's within a 10th of a mile of a retail outlet has actually seen a lift wow. in their value compared to other surrounding properties. Outside that tenth of a mile, zero effect. Hmm. Uh, the, the market has just gone the way the entire market has gone. As I looked at the study, there is no reasoning offered. They're still trying to figure that out as to why that walking distance um, seemed to see uh, in, increased uh, demand uh, for it. Is it is it at all analogous, do you think, if you go back, Elton, to... Uh decades ago where we started to have the first private liquor outlets in uh, in our communities and and they were stationed on major thoroughfares it, are some of the same lessons you think being acquired here where the, you know the the community doesn't apprehend there to be a a problem with having a a retail outlet in its midst well, I think that's true. It will go province by province. Alberta has certainly been on the forefront of saying it will be privatized and uh, similar to the liquor outlets, whereas Ontario has clearly stated it's going to be in uh, similar to the LCBO store geography there. Uh, and so I think that any stigma that might have been around a retail outlet uh, I think in essence has really disappeared. Uh, I think there's greater confidence by the general public around how these will be licensed, uh, what the storefronts will look like. And again, very similar to, to private liquor outlets. They're going to be a entrepreneurial operated uh, retail outlet. And so image is everything wanting to ensure it's welcoming. It's, you know, it, it looks good, it's professional and that sort of thing, because if they're not, then the retail sales would be hurt. So kind of business common sense in, in that sense. Well, we also had some late-breaking news yesterday that Ontario, it looks like changes are afoot for the model that they want to pursue there. It looks as if they will be introducing the uh, private model by the spring, which means that they're going to be putting off, I guess, retail sales uh, starting in October. Instead, I, I believe it's just going to be online sales. So it's going to be interesting to see the country's largest economy handle this and what the potential fallout could be for, say, real estate prices. The other thing that I am wondering about, though, is just on the commercial side of things. I mean, I, I wonder if the time has already passed for securing a lot of the necessary sites for production, because a lot of provinces already want to have their production supplies secured at this moment. I wonder if there's still going to be a lot more, I guess, appetite for getting production facilities going. I also wonder if Canada is looking at other markets around the globe. I know Germany is looking at medical marijuana as well. How much more business do you anticipate there being 
on the commercial side of things for this particular sector? Well, as we look at commercial business and and how and trying to predict what that demand will be, and there's there's lots of predictions out there. You know, four billion dollar economy lift, economic lift kind of predictions out there as to what cannabis legalization will bring about. But but really, it's it's uh, throwing a dart with a blindfold on at this point <laughs> in time until actual sales start to occur. And so I think realistically, it's probably a bit on the conservative side from a business point of view. I'm not saying the predictions are conservative. What I'm saying is that the people getting into grow ops uh, certainly are optimistic about size of operations they want to have. But overall, majority of business people will be cautious as to looking at the investment involved in getting into it. As time progresses, once we get, say, 12 to 24 months behind us and the demand curve starts to be better understood, I believe there will be growth. Uh, hmm. in commercialization of grow opportunities. And so there likely will be growth in that area. Yeah. And going back to specialization, those that uh, become very interested in it, uh, I think have some opportunity. Of course, we've already had in the city of Vancouver, what I would term to be something like a four or five year it's not an experiment, but but a, a display of um, of the cannabis culture, uh, mm -hmm. its interaction. Uh, the city of Vancouver has tried to implement bylaws on it, and I think we it's fair to say it's not a criticism of the dispensaries themselves, but they've largely thumbed their noses at a fair number of the bylaws uh, that have taken place. And so there's been a little bit of a do-what-you-want-to-do type of experience here in the city of Vancouver with the dispensaries. And nobody can say that property value has declined. Um, that, I, I think that's a very accurate statement. Now, you know, now, you know, it, were they not there, would the would the property values be accentuating even more? Um, it would, what's your take on that, Elton? We have because the I proliferation really think, yeah. of, proliferation of these dispensaries has, doesn't seem to have marked any neighborhood down. No, I really think it's a total neutral type of situation, especially in Vancouver. Uh, yeah. Again, looking at the Denver experience, and the other interesting study I've seen in Colorado, and I read this just about a year ago, that when you look at the actual use in the state of Colorado, increased use of marijuana, there was no increase in, in the use of it. In other words, if people used marijuana in the past, they continued to use it. Mm -hmm. If people didn't, they didn't go to it. It, yeah. it, it, it just was sort of a uh, a balanced sort of demand with what there was prior and post. And I'm sure we'll see the same thing in British Columbia. Perhaps I'm asking to speculate just a little bit, but I mean, we're using Denver as an example. We're using Vancouver as an example where I think this, you know, cannabis culture is a lot more accepted. But look at a city like Richmond, which has already said that uh, they're not going to allow any of these uh, retail shops within their own uh, borders. I mean, do you think property values could be affected just depending on the community that some of these places could eventually go into and maybe it's just more of a reflection on the community than anything else no on the residential side i don't see there being any effect on the commercial side yes i mean the property values commercial specific locations that would be um, ideal for uh, a retail outlet uh, in the municipality where it is welcome you'll, you're going to see an increase of those commercial values in a city where it's not welcome, commercial values will just stay the same. 
um, given current economic climate. And so, you know, we, we see this with introduction of any sort of, uh, I don't know, sea change of attitude or, or societal change with the way things are handled. And, and as time progresses after legalization and it becomes more normalized, you'll likely see some of these municipalities start to soften their current stance on, on uh, you know, not wanting it or, or, or that. Because again, society will, will look at it and, and start to come to a better understanding of what the actual effects are, which, which overall I think is gonna be net neutral. Hmm. One thing I wonder about in a city like this, and frankly in, in much of the lower mainland is, the land value being so prohibitive um, is going to force some of the production facilities to be farther and farther mm -hmm. afield. I mean, they can't, can't really make a go of it. I can imagine when some of the plots of land in Vancouver are, are millions of dollars to just frankly get yourself going. Um, are we going to see a situation where uh, there will be um, rural communities now become production hubs where, where commercial real estate in those communities will then build around some of the infrastructure of the production facilities? Well, I think there's going to be great opportunity. And I know in Rock Creek, uh, there's a, a rancher there that is looking at uh, outdoor production facilities to expand his operations and, and look at a a new source of revenue. I mean, when you look at true agricultural operations outside of the uh, densely lower packed lower mainland area, I mean, farming is not uh, is is revenue challenged. Yeah. <laughs> Best way to to, yeah. to talk about. It. And so, this type of an opportunity could really provide some. A, great source of revenue for a true agricultural operation down the, down the road. Do you see, uh, by the way, um, the, the number of ingredients of taxation at a provincial and federal level now starting to make that pressure on the producer even more profound to the point where the production facilities are going to have to be farther and farther away where the land value is going to be cheaper and cheaper? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, ultimately, it's going to boil down to what the margin that's available. I mean, you look at the uh, tomatoes and mm -hmm. and the hothouses that are built and the acres of land that are under glass in the lower mainland, specific to tomatoes, cucumbers, and, and that type of thing, where there's the margin that's available. Uh, you, you know, it's going to be supply and demand. And if the demand is there, that then provides the margin to the to the growers um, uh, it's certainly reasonable to, to feel that, uh, you know, the, these types of, uh, hothouse class operations will get built, oh, yeah. uh, but it's all going to be subject to basic economics in the end. Yeah. And, well, but governments have to be careful not to layer on much more in the way of their own take on this. Otherwise the producer, the producer is not going to find it of any kind of, uh, consequential incentive to get into that business. Oh, absolutely. And, and unfortunately, I think governments uh, of all provinces and federal are looking at this, I think, with fairly rose-colored glasses. I, uh, you know, they're looking at huge tax gains here to, 
to fund social programs and everything else that the government has to fund and perhaps try to cut income taxes because that would be politically, uh, mm-hmm. um, you know, advantageous. So, again, where a lot of this is speculation, once it actually comes, comes into place and, and retail operations are in practice and producers are out there producing it, I sense there is going to be a strong uh, movement on many parts of, of this uh, area as governments look at it, as growers and retailers look at it, as customers start to look at it and where is the pain point how high what can that retail price be Uh, Mm -hmm. you know there's certainly from my point of view i have no idea um but it it, uh it's going to be an interesting experiment as all this starts to unfold well i think as everything unfolds in the coming months uh we'll still want to pick your brain about what the fallout might be for the industry as well as the residential and commercial sectors but elton thank you so much for taking time to chat with us today you're sure welcome it's a it's an interesting story and it's going to be uh the next 12 months it can be very telling oh. i'll be i'll be interested <laughs> i'll be interested to see if at one point there's a neighborhood that feels that its property value has actually increased because of the presence of this, can they they can maybe market it as a cannabis cul-de-sac or something well, it's like that. Like do you have, you know, <laughs> like you have a cool boutique shop in your neighborhood. Sure. You know, yeah. like is that is that ever going to happen? I wonder. Well, it's like it, it's like having the maybe. friends pub, isn't it nearby? Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we'll <laughs> see. Yeah. Excellent. Well, that's Elton Ash, uh, regional executive vice president of Remax of Western Canada, and that's it for BIV today. Thank you for listening. Make sure you tell your friends to subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher, and don't forget to leave a review. Be sure also to find our stories in print and online at BIV.com. We'll see you next time.